Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, Episode 2. I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. This is a podcast about all things Metallica, by Metallica fans, for Metallica fans. My guest today is author Mark Eglinton. He specializes in biographies, memoirs, writing a lot about music figures, sports figures. He's a Scottish gentleman who is based primarily in the UK, but also occasionally on the West Coast of the United States. His brand new book is So Let It Be Written, the biography of Metallica's James Hetfield. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of books out there about Metallica, both authorized and unauthorized, but to my knowledge, this is the only biography specifically about Mr. Hetfield. There's a foreword from Chuck Billy, vocalist of Testament, who is, of course, a Bay Area thrash metal legend himself. Mark is also the co-author of Official Truth, 101 Proof, which is Rex Brown from Pantera's autobiography, which came out a few years ago. And he worked with Nergal from Behemoth on his book, Confessions of a Heretic, The Sacred and the Profane, Behemoth and Beyond. Mark and I spoke a lot about the differences between a ghostwriter, a co-writer, a biographer. We talked a lot about the process of him putting this book together about James Hetfield, as well as a little bit about his background, his work with Nergal on the Behemoth book, and lots and lots of Metallica in general. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. The feedback from our first episode with M Shadows of Avenged Sevenfold has been incredible. I'm absolutely blown away by how many people have checked it out and i want to let all of you know that this is a two-way street i'm actually launching a speak and destroy contest i'm giving away the remastered deluxe box set of kill em all the debut album from metallica this is one of those gorgeous box sets that they put out semi-recently they did one for ride the lightning they've been threatening to do one for every record which i hope they follow through with there's a bunch of great stuff from the vaults if you head over to youtube you can find a really cool unboxing video with james hetfield himself walking you through everything that's in this thing i mean these are gorgeous the, the boxes are huge it comes with four vinyl lps five compact discs a DVD, and a super sick hardcover book with a whole bunch of never-before-seen photos. There's also a patch in here. I'm giving one of these away. These things go for about 150 bucks retail. They're limited edition. They're numbered. Thank you to my friends at Warner Music who act as the distributors for Blackened Recordings, Metallica's own record label. If you didn't know, they got all of their master recording rights back a few years ago. Here's all you have to do to enter this contest to win this Metallica Kill 'em All Deluxe Edition collectible limited numbered box set. All I need you to do is go to iTunes, rate this podcast with five stars, and write a little review. It can be one sentence. If, if they'll let you do that, I think they will. It can be a thousand words. I don't know. I, I probably should have looked to see if there's any limitations in either direction. But if you're listening to this, I think you're smart enough to figure that out. It's really simple. If you're on your podcast app, on your iPhone, just go into it, go into the search function, search Speak and Destroy, and you'll see where there are already some reviews posted and a little option for you to write a review yourself. Reviews matter, ratings matter. The more positive reviews and ratings Speak and Destroy gets, the higher visibility it will have and the more people will find out about it. So I didn't want to just sit here and punish listeners about rating and reviewing without doing something in return. So I have this box set. Like I said, they retail for like 150 bucks. It's really awesome. It's not my personal copy because I'm never giving that away. This is thanks to my friends at Warner Music. You get the remastered Kill 'Em All record as well as a digital download and on vinyl and on CD. 
There's a live show from 1984 recorded in Paris, France. There's the Jump in the Fire picture disc from back in the day. You get radio IDs with Lars, James, and Cliff from 1984, plus a Metal Forces interview with Lars from January 1984. There's a bunch of rough mixes from Lars's vault, bootleg tracks, a Whiplash remix EP, uh, another live show from 1984, this one in Middleton, New York, a show from 1983 on Halloween in Palo Alto, California. As you can imagine, the set list uh, for these shows based on the time period, very Kill 'em All heavy, also some Ride the Lightning songs, including The Call of Cthulhu back when it was called When Hell Freezes Over. And finally, the DVD has a live show filmed at the Metro in Chicago in 1983 as well. Man, I mean, this thing is awesome. And there's MP3s of a bunch of this stuff in there. So here's what we're going to do. As soon as there are 100 reviews of Speak and Destroy in the iTunes store, I'm going to pick one of those reviews. I may even uh, bring in some judges to help me choose which review we find to be the most deserving. Or maybe we'll even just pick at random. Maybe it'll be just someone's one-sentence review. Going to pick one of you once we hit 100 and send you this Kill em All Deluxe Edition box set. We've got some great guests confirmed for future episodes of Speak and Destroy. So again, please subscribe. Also, feel free to drop me a line if you have suggestions about people you want to hear on here, questions that you'd like to have answered, any sort of Metallica nerd trivia that I might know that you're curious about. You can email me at ryan at popcurse.com. Again, that's ryan at popcurse.com. Confirmed guests for future episodes include Rob Flynn of Machine Head. Greg from the Dillinger Escape Plan and Killer Be Killed. Blasco, basis for Ozzy Osbourne, former basis for Rob Zombie, and seminal crossover band Cryptic Slaughter. A small bit of Metallica news here before we jump into this interview with Mark Eglinton, author of So Let It Be Written, the new biography on James Hetfield. Just want to mention, give a special congratulations and shout out to Lars, who became a knight of the Danish Empire. Is that, is that what it's called, I guess? Do they call it the, the Danish realm? The crown prince of Denmark, his home country, recently knighted him. Yes, the drummer of Metallica is now a Danish knight. So that's Sir Lars Ulrich to you. Officially, I'm a rider of uh, Danibolt, which is the Danish flag. So now I need to get a horse. Just as silly as it sounds. I mean, obviously, you know, but it's kind of cool. You know, listen, the Scott Nose Kids, that Scott Nose Kid, a drummer in a heavy metal band, gets that kind of honor bestowed upon him. I mean, that's pretty cool. So let's start the show. Here's my interview with Mark Eglinton. <laughs> I think something that a lot of people listening to this may not be as well versed in as you are. Um, could you explain sort of in brief some of the differences between uh, an autobiography uh, and then writing sort of a biography with someone, writing a biography without someone, and also operating as a ghostwriter? Because these are sort of all different hats that you've worn as an author. Yeah, good point. And it's something that I uh, get into conversations with people uh, about quite regularly as well. So to break it down in, in, in the way that you've raised the the different disciplines, writing a third-person biography as this is, is distinct from all the others in that it's not authorized by the subject. It's done off your own bat. The research is your own. You're free to access people who may provide comment, as I've done in this book. You're also free to contact the artist and see if they're willing to contribute, which I did on a very very light basis but that's really all it is so it's a biography it's written about somebody and it's written in the third person and 
that's the only this this would be the only biography I've ever done. I've never written this kind of book before. Most of my other work involves working with somebody on what would be normally called an autobiography. So in the case of Rex Brown of Pantera, that was with Rex in collaboration, writing his life story in his voice, which is first person. I did this, I did that. Similarly with Nurgle, that was slightly different, Nurgle of Behemoth. That was a book that was already done, except it needed adaptation for English language because it was released in Poland, first of all. So that was, again, a slightly different variation on the theme. But again, you're working with the artist with their full cooperation. So that's that's the main differences. A ghostwriter normally refers to somebody who's brought on board, uh, and I have done this, I'm doing it now, brought on board to work with somebody and their name will not be known. They won't be credited on the cover. They won't. There, there'll be no mention of their involvement. That's usually a publisher-driven scenario. The, the ghostwriter, uh, and they're there to get the project over the line, but not not necessarily take the credit. I had a conversation with an editor and a book publisher recently. He was talking about how, particularly when it comes to rock and roll bios. The unauthorized take is kind of what you want to get. And he was quoting someone, I don't I think it might have been Tom Petty, uh, but someone who had said, like, look, if you call it unauthorized, then I can tell you all the real stuff. So <laughs> I think something people misunderstand sometimes is when it says unauthorized on the front of the book. Oftentimes there's a wink and a nod and a pat on the back from the subject of the book who's kind of saying, OK, look, I'm not putting my stamp on this necessarily, but you have my blessing behind the scenes was that sort of the case with this book uh no it wasn't i'd like to say that it was the the extent of my reaching out to metallica and q prime was an email to q prime saying i'm doing this would anyone there in fact i was trying to contact bob rock and i was trying to go through them to talk to him and they said we don't normally uh, get involved in anything that isn't authorized by the band and us so very politely, thanks, but no thanks. That was the extent of it. And I think that unauthorized, certainly from experience, unauthorized biographies get a kind of a bad rap out there because people assume that they're not legitimate. That's not, ne not necessarily the case. I, I, I know it's not the case, but I think people look at it and say, well, if the artist hasn't endorsed this, if the artist hasn't made it official, therefore it's no good. And I agree with you when you say that sometimes the unauthorized books are some of the best ones. And I can throw a good few examples out there. Uh, Hammer of the Gods, the Led Zeppelin book by Stephen Davis, not authorized at all. I can't think of a better Led Zeppelin book out there. So there, I think it's horses for courses, depending on the band, depending on how they, how they view stuff that's out with their scope of approval. I think it, it, it depends how it works out. But in my opinion, there's no difference between a, an unauthorized book and, a, and an authorized book in terms of legitimacy. I think they're both equally legitimate, but, but different entities. So let's uh, step back a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your background. I know you are uh, multilingual. Uh, for one thing, how many, <laughs> how many how many languages do you speak? Well, it's not uh, that's confusing because I've got my website and it says multilingual. Well, all it's re all it's referring to is the fact that books that I have done have been translated into multi languages. That's something I should probably clarify, which is the case. Uh, as as people may know, books are very often, particularly books about musicians, are often given foreign rights translations, which involves them appearing in other countries. I did not personally translate all those as much as I'd like to have. But uh, my background is not hasn't always been in in writing. I was a good English student at school, but it was always the kid that was leaving class. And I was at a boarding school in Scotland. I'd leave class on a Saturday morning to go and play rugby or whoever it was. And my English teacher would say, you're wasting your time. There's no career in this. You should stick with English. And I'd just laugh and say, yeah, okay, whatever. It's never going anywhere. And I've been in other disciplines in life. I've been in business, ran a couple of companies, really took a long time to find what it was I wanted to do. And the big, the big sort of drawback with writing that I saw was how do you how do you monetize it and it's a fair question sometimes it's a fair question still but I found a way to do that at a certain point not via the normal journalism route which is the route that many people who write books go down they start by writing for magazines I never did that really uh, I went straight into writing books and from there it's continued but it's something that I always had in my mind but could never really see a way of making a living out of it and at what point did you sort of turn that corner where you realized it was something that you could do professionally I think the moment you become involved in a co-write, and for me, that was the first one was with Rex of Pantera. I mean, being brutally honest, the, 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 the financial implications of being attached to an autobiography by someone like that are attractive. And I think when you don't need to worry about eating 
when you're actually involved in writing the book makes it a whole lot easier. And that was the case. You know, the advance is enough that you can basically block off however much time it is that's going to be required to write the book. And I think when you're in that situation, you're not worrying about money the whole time. I think that's when you realize this could be done as a living and then build onto that. If that book does well and you're approached for something else, all of a sudden you could have two things running, not concurrently, but dovetailing nicely. So you might have an advance for one thing. You might have uh, a secondary payment for something else coming a few months later. All of a sudden you can have a look at your year and say, well, I can have a pretty nice year here with maybe three or four things going going on uh, one after the other. And that's really how it worked out for me. And you split your time between the UK and the West Coast of the United States, correct? That's right. Primarily UK based now. And the reason, well, family in the, in the UK, my wife's American, we both live here. The, I think after the Rex, the Rex Brown book, I, th- I think the next book that came up for me was non, non-music related. It was a sports memoir with somebody who's UK based. I came back to do that and uh, haven't really left since then, but you know, still back and forward, but primarily UK based at the moment. Was that the book about the rugby player who was a stroke right. survivor? Yeah, okay. That's right. Yeah, that was that was somebody who I'd encountered as a child. He played rugby for Australia. He'd be considered, a, in sort of US terms, a Hall of Famer in the sport. Long retired from the sport uh, and then aged 48, a stroke out of nowhere. And everything that he knew about life came into question as he lay in a sort of, you know, intensive care bed. And I thought, this is a great idea for a book, this whole elite athlete versus the frailty of the human body dialogue i reached out to him and said let's do this and and that's what we did and that became a really great project that ended up being shortlisted for a major award in the uk so that was just another discipline that i wanted to get into i don't want to get ever pigeonholed into writing rock memoirs or music books i'd like to think that if the right project's there i'll do that and that's really how it's progressed from there And working on the book uh, with Nergal from Behemoth, what are, what are some of the unique challenges in adapting something from, in this case, Polish? How does that whole process work? That one was quite simple because he, uh, prior to hiring me, and by the way, he tried to sell this book into the English language publishing network a few times and got nowhere. I'd like to think that my involvement probably helped sell it because uh, I suggested, why, why don't we try and sell this? And he said, oh, there's, there's no deal out there. Uh, I've tried. I said, let me try. So we, we, we put it in front of a couple of people that I knew. And I said, I'd be attached. I'd be helping smoothing the language transition. And I think that appealed to publishers. I hope so, anyway. And from that point, I was given or was engaged with, rather, a Polish guy who spoke pretty good, pretty good English who was doing a translation. But the translation that I got was what I described. I mean, it was excellent. I, I don't speak Polish, so I wouldn't like to say what my translation the other way would be like. It wouldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do it. But, but his translation was good, but it, but it was quite wooden and stiff. And I just thought that if we're going to sell this book into America and the UK market, it needs to be anglified a little bit. And I think that's the word I used in the intro. It needed anglified. It needed sharpened up and some of the clunkiness taken out of it. So that was my job there. And I would say that my role in that book was probably best described as a sort of developmental editor, where I looked at the text. I mean, the meaning was never altered, but the the, the presentation of the text was altered quite significantly. And it was quite challenging at times. Yeah, to put it in theological terms, terms, it would be like, you know, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law type of thing. Exactly. That's right. It's a good way of putting it. So let's dig into Metallica. Tell me a little bit about your personal relationship to the band's music and sort of what was your evolution you know as a kid getting into music what were some bands that turned you on and how did you end up uh, listening to that stuff i think probably a bit like everyone of my age i'll be 47 this year anyone working backwards will know that what that means is that i was 16 in 1986 uh the year that master master puppets came out prior to that I'd kind of dip my toe into heavy metal in the normal way, going to a boarding school with, I don't think, any particular knowledge of heavy metal prior to the age of 11 or 12, and someone thrusting a mixtape in my hand and and saying, you need to listen to this stuff. And I I remember what was on the mixtape. There was stuff like Boston, there was Black Sabbath.
there was a bunch of things on there. As soon as I heard that, I thought, okay, this is the, dire- the direction I need to go in. And uh, from that point onwards, I just devoured everything that came out. And around that time, 84, 85, 86, there was a lot coming out. And then Master of Puppets came out. And I think I might have, I may have bought Ride the Lightning retrospectively, having heard Master of Puppets first. I don't remember the order, but I remember hearing Master of Puppets and thinking somebody had reinvented the wheel. Just so happened that they were in town, in the town that I was at school in was Edinburgh. They were on tour with Anthrax on that Damage Inc. tour. We went along. James had a broken arm. They were incredible. John Marshall from Metal Church was playing guitar for him that night. I think that's when uh, Headfield had broken his arm skateboarding, is that right? That's right. He'd broken his arm two weeks previously, somewhere in Indiana or somewhere skateboarding. Indiana's my home state. There you go. And they they got through, but it was weird because having somebody playing the rhythm parts was was quite an odd first first way to see them. Anyway, fantastic show. Me and a friend of mine went to a bar that isn't there anymore next to the venue. I think it's called the Stage Door. And as we were standing around having a beer, there's James and Cliff Cliff Burton standing there. We didn't know what to say to them. So we just went up to them and said, hey, do you want a beer? And they were like, well, yeah. And we stood there and just completely fanboyed these guys for 10 or 15 minutes. And we went on our way. But I remember the the two personalities very very clearly. Cliff was very outgoing, very, very talkative. James was much more guarded and seemed to be not, not suspicious, but certainly not so forthcoming with befriending these two guys from Scotland. Yeah, Cliff uh, was certainly a, a one-of-a-kind person, uh, very uh, secure in himself and who he is, what he likes doing, what he likes listening to, his surroundings, whatever it was. I don't know what made him so secure of himself. Uh, he must have grown up with just really you know, supportive people around him. And that was really the beginning of Metallica for me. From that point onwards, I was I was hooked. So I, I, I don't know how many times I've seen them since live, but certainly a few times, different eras, and it's always meant every bit as much to me ever since. And I mean, 1986, to me, it's hard to, particularly when you talk about sort of modern metal and thrash metal, you know, and so on, it's hard to pick a more quintessential year because you have Master of Puppets, you have uh, Megadeth piece sells, but who's buying? Let's see, uh, Darkness Ascends, Dark Angel, that was 1986. Eternal Devastation from Destruction. Rain and Blood. Rain and Blood, of course. Yeah, 1986, the first Candlemas album. Maybe the second Voivod record, the first or second Voivod record, King Diamond, Fatal Portrait. It's you know when you just run down the list, it's um, incredible looking back, and it's sort of uh, you know I'm not too far behind you in age, and I don't know that we realize what an embarrassment of riches was being descended upon us in 1986. With yeah, all I just don't think I, I don't think any of that time during the 80s. I don't think anyone uh, really registered what was happening. I think uh, I certainly remember just thinking, oh, this is how it always is. And it was only once you got into the 90s and the 2000s that you realized that not every decade was like the 80s. And, you know, I I pity some people who were born a decade too late or 20 years too late and all that kind of thing. But, yeah, it certainly was an embarrassment of riches to the point that you almost couldn't couldn't buy it all. The stuff was coming out so fast you couldn't acquire it all. 
Yeah, and I, and my my evolution was was somewhat similar. I had, uh, you know I was really into punk rock and new wave and that sort of thing as an elementary school kid and into middle school. And I had a friend who he listened to you know hair metal bands of the day like White Snake and Dawkins and stuff like that. And he bought Megadeth P cells on cassette basically by mistake, thinking it was going to be hair metal. Put it on and was like, "What is this? This is insane and terrible. I don't like it." And literally gave me the cassette just to get rid of it. And that, for me, was the defining, you know, popping that cassette in out of pure curiosity and going immediately from uh, the Smiths and the Cure and Billy Idol, Generation X, that sort of thing, to hearing P-Cells and having my, you know, my entire life changed. Uh, So I'm at my local newsstand uh, soon after falling in love with this record. It was the only metal record I had. And there was a magazine called uh, Cream Magazine Presents Thrash Metal. It was a one-off special. It had Dave Mustaine on the cover. And I went, hey, that's the guy from that band. Bought the magazine. And this is hilarious as we're having this conversation right now because I think this was 1987. There was an article in that magazine that was called The Top 20 Greatest Thrash Metal Albums of All Time. And, yeah. and it's hilarious to think even the hubris of doing an article like that in 87, which, although by the same turn, when you look back, you go, well, I suppose most of the greatest Thrasher albums of all time had already come out. That's right. And it was a writer called Don Kay who did that article, who I've actually become friends with uh, many, many years later now in adulthood, uh, and a sort of life full circle sort of thing. But yeah, that list had, you know, Kill Em All was on there, Ride the Lightning was on there, Master of Puppets was on there, Rain and Blood was on there, and I sort of set about making it my mission to buy as many of those records as I could, you know, stealing away lunch money and using my allowance and that sort of thing. Yep. Accumulating. I think everyone did the same. Yeah, and, and I think part of the extreme fandom that drives Metallica fans, you know, at the time, and this is, this is oddball, but the current Metallica release that had just come out was the Garage Days EP. Yep. So that was actually, you know, that was current Metallica, you know, when I was getting in the band around 87, 88. And I remember buying in Justice for All uh, on street date. The first time I saw the band was the Monsters of Rock tour, which was Van Halen with Sammy Hagar, the Scorpions, Doc and Metallica, yep. and Kingdom Comes. Metallica's second on that bill. At the time, you know, nowadays I would love to see the Scorpions or, or even Van Halen with Sammy Hagar, but at the time I didn't want anything to do with any band on that bill except Metallica. And yep. my, my friend and I go to the show. We're both wearing our Metallica t-shirts. We stand with our middle fingers in the air for Kingdom Come. We watch Metallica and we're out of there by like four in the afternoon. <laughs> and I think that's, yeah. uh, you know, as, as, I, as I've learned throughout my life, that's very common sort of to the, the Metallica experience, particularly in the, in the mid to late 80s and early 90s getting into the band, you know, kind of prior to the Black Album. Well, I think, I think there was definitely this, this sense of having crossed a divide that once you got into that kind of music, it was very hard to go back and listen to your Dawkins and Cinderella's and all these bands, all these bands I liked. I liked a great deal up until I got into the whole idea of thrash. But there did seem that there was a sort of sense of disloyalty if you listened to them while also liking Rain and Blood or Megadeth or whatever it was. And for me, the path only went more extreme. I didn't go backward. I mean, I still obviously like lots of classic classic rock bands and all of that. And as I've got older, I still do. But for me, the path went more and more extreme uh, from Metallica, not the other way. Absolutely. And I think and I think they were a similar gateway for, for so many of us and, and have continued to be even at different points in their career. You know, I think last year was the 20th anniversary of Load. And to, right. re- and to realize that there are, you know, there's someone who's, 25 years old who was five years old when load came out yeah, <laughs> it's mind-blowing to sense. think that you know yeah that, that was some of those records were some of those later records were someone's first entry point into metallica and into this whole sort of music so um i wanted to ask you about the other metallica book uh in your bibliography so to speak um yeah. james hetfield the wolf at metallica's door what, what are the differences between that one and this book that's just come out so let it be written well, the, the, to clarify, that book was a UK-only publication at that time that was not available in the US, and that was a small publisher. This is a reissue, so not just a reissue in terms of just the same book. There's significant editorial changes. There's additions. There's removals. There's repackaging. There's extension. It's a it's a much different book from that. Albeit there are certain commonalities in terms of the people that have been spoken to, but I don't view them as the same thing. One of them came out very much longer, very much a long time ago now, and there's there's quite a big separation between the two. It's almost a uh, 
remastered remix deluxe edition with all sorts of bonus material and liner notes and yeah precisely one of the things that i love is as you know metallica fan for so many years and an intense metallica fan so to speak i feel like i've seen just about every photo there is to see and yet flipping through your new book there's all sorts of stuff i'd never seen before like the uh the faux hit parader cover with Ron McGovney and James on it. Yeah. You know, they done it. A fair, I have a very similar fairground, you know, me on a pro wrestling magazine from like the third. Like I know exactly what those things are that they're doing there. You know, and it looks like, uh, you know, a, a lot of the photo credits, like you got a lot of photos from Ron. What was sort of, what was that process like of sort of tracking all these different characters down and collecting, you know, convincing them to let you use their photos and that sort of thing. And, and if you could, I guess, uh, even just give me kind of a rundown of, uh, all the different characters that are in the book. Of course, I have the book, but people listening to this don't. So, yeah, I mean, the, the key to to all of this was, you know, when I when I started this project, the the fundamental question that I had to ask myself was, what am I going to do, given that it won't be authorized to make this something that people will want, and given that I probably wasn't going to get access to the band, I probably wasn't going to get access to first extensions on a sort of corporate level, guys like Bob Rock, et cetera, for the same reasons, I had to figure out a way of getting to people that had never spoken before. And that 15 years ago or 20 years ago would have been impossible. But nowadays with the internet and all these kind of things, you can track people down. And for me, it was just a trial and error. I can't remember who I spoke to first, but it doesn't matter who it was. They say, oh, you might want to speak to so-and-so. And from there on, it goes down the, down the path. You're given a contact. You're given a name. You find them. You contact them. You see what they have to say. Some, uh, In fact, 90% of people were extremely helpful with their input and their photographs and everything that they gave me. But that was how it evolved. I didn't have a hit list of people. It was something that kind of grew from the inside. But I think the most important one, Hugh Tanner appeared out of nowhere, uh, having never spoken about Metallica in his entire life. I don't think anybody knew he'd had any involvement with James or Metallica. And and initially, he wasn't very keen to talk at all for reasons which are his own. He didn't want to do it. He hadn't done for X amount of time. But over a period of conversation and going back and forth with emails, I, I think he, he felt that I was doing this this thing sympathetically and that it wasn't a wasn't an attempt to dig dirt on anyone. I was genuinely trying to create something interesting and new for the fans and all that kind of thing. And he, he came on board and was very generous. And the photographs that you mentioned from a number of people, they came about as a result of those conversations. Normally they'd say, I'll tell you this and I'll tell you that. Then they'd say, oh, and by the way, I have a picture of that somewhere, which I'll dig out for you and I'll email you. And that's how it happened. And as a result, I was able to come up with stuff that people haven't seen before, simply because these people had never been on the radar in terms of the band before. It was as simple as that. That's so cool. Yeah, Hugh Tanner, I think the first time I ever even saw what he looked like really was uh, when he showed up for the 30th anniversary shows a few years back. Yeah. I, I thought that was so cool. And, and you could see the genuine love and appreciation and the history uh, was like tangible between him and Hetfield on stage together. Yeah, definitely. And that that was sort of gratifying to see that that, that that whole thing had come around. But, you know, Hugh was just one of these guys who had his own path in life that didn't involve being in a band. I mean, quite often these these people who, when they're 17 or 18, have parental pressure of some kind saying, you want to be in a band? You, you know, you need to finish high school and you need to go to college or whatever it is you're, you're going to be doing that's, that's going to offer, on paper, better prospects than being in a band called Metallica. What they didn't know was what Metallica would go on to be. So, you know, you understand why people would make that turn away from being in a band. But, you know, for a while, Hugh Tanner could have been in Metallica. Yeah, and that's one of those, um, as a comic book fan, one of those sort of multiverse, alternate, <laughs> parallel universe kind of questions where, you know, you look at some of the people who come in and out of a band and you wonder you know, certainly the trajectory of the whole thing would have been changed from a creative standpoint. You know, a lot of times it's the combination of that right chemistry of the right people at the right time. Yep. You know, and sometimes it's about one or two people. You know, at this point, I think if you put Liam and Noel Gallagher on stage together, just like if you stand Axl Rose and Slash on stage together, to some extent, people don't really care who else is up there. So, you know, for each band, I suppose it's a little bit different. Uh, you know, it's interesting talking about Hugh Tanner. A couple of years ago, I went to go see Metallica play this uh, video game convention in Anaheim. 
And I realized a couple of songs in that I was stood right behind Lloyd Grant. Yeah. <laughs> and I just sort of wondered to myself, I wonder if I'm the only person here who's like recognizing Lloyd Grant because <laughs> no one was bothering him or anything, you know, and I didn't end up even saying hello, but I just, I thought it was cool. You know, there's Lloyd Grant. <laughs> I think the casual, the casual fan uh, probably doesn't even know that Lloyd Grant was ever anything to do with Metallica. And again, that's part of the process of a book like this. You want to try and shine a light on these guys and, you know, tell make it known to people that there were other figures involved and if if it's people who are quietly going about their business doing whatever they do now that's nothing to do with music i think to me that's almost even better that these guys exist absolutely and i've had an opportunity to get to know some of these characters just through my various travels as both a journalist and a manager in music one of them is michael alago what's interesting about michael is that you know i came to work with him uh, he was representing a, a a band that made a record with a producer client of mine. And at a certain point you get on the phone to talk about budgets and delivery dates and all that sort of business stuff. And then once that's done, I can't help but go, so uh, you're Michael Lago. <laughs> you know, you signed the res the resurrection era misfits to Geffen and you, uh, you know, and, and all of a sudden I'm just, you know, getting story after story out of them. And some of these guys, yeah, it's like you get the sense that, when the right person such as yourself who has the reputation and the background and so on and clearly you're you're coming from the right place so to speak a lot of these guys it's like once you break the ice they've got all kinds of things to say because it's not it's not every day that michael lago is talking about metallica you know no true and and uh i went in there not not presuming that they would definitely want to cooperate. I went in there very, I'd like to think very respectfully and, you know, wary of the fact that perhaps this isn't something they want to do, but under the right circumstances presented correctly with the right uh, motivation and angle, I was hoping that maybe they would take that opportunity. And thankfully, almost without exception, I, can't, I don't think anyone really turned me down. I think everyone was really, really happy to do it. One of my uh, sort of early quote unquote celebrity sightings, as a resident of Los Angeles is I saw Dr. Phil Tao yeah. <laughs> on the sidewalk in Santa Monica wearing one of his classic sweaters. And, and that was another one kind of similar to the Lloyd Grant experience where you, where you go, man, this is like an important character to me. And you know, there's no one else on this entire block that <laughs> has any idea or would care. Well, we do have a, we do have, and I don't know if he's here or not, but Phil, Phil Toll, he's a, He's our enhancement coach, and he, he works with a lot of pro football teams. And uh, we've got him in here to help us with some of our performance and, and, and dial in uh, how to get the best performance out of us, uh, you know, knock down walls, take, you know, shields off, and let's get, let's get down and get dirty here uh, and get real with each other and get some team teamwork, how to work in a team effort, you know, not so individualistic. I know. I wonder what he's doing now. I mean, I, I think it was alluded to that he was involved with sports teams prior to Metallica. I was never aware of that uh, that angle to to what he did. In fact, I didn't know anything about him until he appeared for that whole period of time. But I guess he's gone back to doing what he did before. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I find so fascinating about James Hetfield, so, you know, I feel like so many of us, a lot of our adult life, for better or worse, is informed and defined by those early developmental parts of childhood as a parent, you know, I have two kids and that's something I'm constantly thinking about is how uh, impactful and important so many different things that might've seemed inconsequential to the adults around uh, were in my childhood. And I'm, I'm always as cognizant as I can be about that without driving myself completely insane. But with that being said, I think, you know, Hetfield is one of the most fascinating characters out there in the rock world, given a lot of that sort of childhood trauma and, um, you know, a lot of feelings of alienation and loneliness and sort of that a lot of us who get into this music can relate to. Yeah. But also, you know, the death of a parent, which was something I also experienced that I've always sort of connected on a fan audience level uh, to the music. And, and certainly some of the songs like Dyer's Eve and uh, The God That Failed and some of these things where he really kind of cracks himself open. How how much a part of that was sort of your your impetus to to want to do this book and how, how much of that were you familiar with beforehand and then sort of digging into it? Uh, what did you uncover that might have been surprising or... I was I was definitely familiar with it, and I think that's something I saw in him the first time I set eyes on him. I'm not saying I'm super intuitive or anything, but I could certainly see there was somebody there who was uh, 
wrestling with a few things. And it definitely appeared that the sort of young James Hetfield was using his lyrics, perhaps some of his onstage persona as a means of exercising some of the demons that he had going on. It sounds like really a cliche, but I think when, when you're young and you don't really know how to articulate, and that's something that very few young people do know, including myself when I was young, you, you know, if you've got anger issues or frustrations or things you don't understand, you don't know to articulate them. Therefore, it comes out in something in you, whether whether you know, you're really good at sport and you, you, you dedicate all your energy into that or whether you're in a band and you get it out that way. But for him, that seemed to be the way he was doing it. And I paid attention to the lyrics. I could tell when there was something that needed put out there and that was his way of doing it. Uh, and I always saw it as a fascinating side of him, but I, I never realized it would culminate in what ultimately was the upshot of the whole some kind of monster period. I, I didn't see that coming. But what I did like most of all was to see that once it had happened, he came out the other end a completely different person. And, and that's not that wasn't just a flash in the pan. It wasn't just a, a brief period of seemingly, you know, you see people going into to seek help for certain things. They come out and it lasts for a certain period of time. Then it kind of drifts back to the old the old ways. With him, it hasn't been like that. He's been consistent from what I've heard and from my research ever since then. He's basically been a completely different person. I think it's. I mean, it's so monumental that uh, not only did you meet them at such a pivotal time, but that you encountered that duo of James and Cliff together. Because, of course, the, the partnership between James and Lars can't be overstated in terms of its importance to what Metallica is. And certainly, I think the two of them are the key ingredients that make it everything that we know and love. But, you know, Cliff Cliff has sort of the, the blessing and the curse. You know, when someone dies young like that, I find that a lot of fans... You, know, you kind of freeze them in time. And so you don't really get to see them grow and evolve and change and make mistakes and do things that maybe you're uncomfortable with. And it's easy to sort of fetishize, you know, some of these uh, mythic characters. Uh, but I think James in particular, you can really see uh, how at a certain point, the loss of Cliff, you know, from something as literal as the non-existent base on Injustice for All to these days, I feel like he, he seems to really be in touch with sort of that spirit of uh, what made Cliff special. And, and I feel like more and more in the last five or 10 years, even, uh, you know, whether it's involving Cliff's father and a lot of things or just different things that get said on stage, I almost feel like, and I would love your insight on this. I feel like Cliff Burton sort of represents a part of James that he admired and had difficulty accessing about himself. And I feel like the yeah, it's like the more he's gotten in touch with himself, the more he's sort of gotten closer to Cliff in a way all these years later. Yeah, I think that's one part of it. I think there's there's, pro, there's two or three strands to it. I think that's one of them. I think uh, Ray Burton's presence throughout, as you mentioned, has been important. I think it's kept it kind of present in that he's a tangible reminder to, uh, to, to Cliff. And also one thing that I, I don't think anyone can sort of value highly enough, and I think... I think Rob Trujillo's presence in Metallica has been one of the primary reasons why James has seemed happier. The band dynamic has been happier. This new record has turned out really well. I think Rob Trujillo has been a, a very significant factor in that, you know, for lots of different reasons. One, he's a little bit younger, brings a, a, a new sort of creative angle that perhaps wasn't there before. I think there's lots of reasons, but I think you're right. You know, I think James probably is more comfortable. You need to ask him, but more comfortable with the, the idea of Cliff being gone than he ever has been. Yeah. And, and it's, it's been really remarkable and, and uh, endearing to watch as a fan. Um, I'd, yeah. be re I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of the most fascinating parts of So Gotta Be Written for me. I love that you dedicated an entire chapter to that Playboy interview. In fact, the chapter's, the chapter's even called Playboy. Uh, be because, yeah, for anyone who's seen some kind of monster, it's hard to overstate the importance of that interview. And, and to give listeners a, a little bit of background on that, and, uh, you know, I believe they were all interviewed separately, right? And that was kind of where the problem began. Yeah, I think... I think the Playboy interview was the first sense that, it, well, there, there were clues to issues with Jason, Jason Newstead prior to that. But I think the Playboy interview was where it became very apparent that there were very significant issues with Jason. Jason had been traveling, I think before the Playboy interview came out, he'd been traveling separately from the band, which is, you know, people overstate the importance of that. You know, they're in a situation where they can afford to, number one. But I think it was indicative of a bit of, of, of the paths diverging. I think as soon as you interview people separately, 
I think you, I mean, it's a great journalistic tool because if you've got everyone in the room at the same time, I think the body language and the presence of other people probably uh, prohibits genuine honesty. I think to put people separately and to, to interview them on their own, I think creates a situation where you're really going to get how people feel. And, that, and that's what happened. People really voiced what they felt. And I think it was a culmination of a few years of tension and bitterness. And I think it all came out in the wash at that point, uh, to the extent that there probably was no way forward other than what happened afterwards. And I think that includes Jason leaving the band. I mean, Jason was in a situation where, you know, I can't play in another side project, albeit a very small one. I think it was Echo Brain or whatever he was doing at the time. Pro pro probably great. But the fact that he was being told you cannot do this and still be part of Metallica. I think it was definitive for him at that point. And as soon as he said it, there was really no taking it back. It seemed like, it almost felt like disloyalty where he, he was saying, if I can't do this, I don't want to be part of it. And that's ultimately what happened. And so I think it was really important in the context of their trajectory that that interview happened. Uh, and it was very revealing in, in highlighting some of the cracks that had been quietly forming in the sort of preceding five to 10 years, maybe. I think something that gets lost in the understanding of that relationship with Jason, and I think I have a lot of sympathy for this, or maybe I'm a little more in tune with it, or I could be projecting my own stuff here, but you know, when you lose a parent early in life, uh, as, as James Hetfield did, as I did, uh, you certainly struggle with these abandonment issues later in life and these trust issues and intimacy and loyalty and uh, things that you're not necessarily perceptive that you're doing. But, you know, as James has mentioned in interviews since then, it's like he's, you know, he squeezed so tightly with that Newstead relationship that it's like a bar of soap where if you're holding on to it too tightly, it's going to fly out of your hand. You know, you that self-fulfilling prophecy where you're so afraid someone's going to leave that you, you force them out the door. And, you know, yeah, and as you said earlier, I think it's really remarkable and re really just awesome as a fan to see the growth that's happened with this this guy who's been so important to so many people around the world and whose music has helped and affected so many people in such a monumental way that he's gotten the help that he needs and that it's it's there's kind of this reciprocal relationship where he's been able to grow through the process of being a Metallica and, and be a happier person, be a guy that can yeah. raise bees on a farm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the, the other thing that I, you know, people ask me, you know, what, what message comes out of this? Well, I think one important one is, you know, he had a very tough upbringing. There's lots of kids out there who are having tough upbringings. James had posters of Aerosmith in his bedroom wall. We all do it. You know, you somehow feel maybe just maybe I could do this. And, you know, I think reading his story and seeing how he did do it against the odds as well, because, I mean, let's remember up until 1987, something like that, Metallica were still basically an underground band with a big fan base in the underground, granted, but still an underground band that no, I don't think anyone could have foreseen in 1987 what they would be in, for example, 1992. That five years was a huge step. I think it's a, a message to anyone who's maybe struggling with life, you know, hang in there, do, do whatever it is you're doing, and you can come out the other end of it as well. I think it's a positive message in that respect. I got to ask about uh, Chuck Billy of Testament, who wrote the foreword for this book. What were your, what were your experiences like with Chuck? What, what can you tell me about Chuck Billy. Chuck's got a fascinating story. Having talked to him extensively for something else, I do know quite a lot about his background. And he had some similar issues growing up. Uh, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that, you know, he, he was contending with, I think his father was native and his mother was Mexican, the other way around. I think he had tough issues going through high school and junior high. And those feelings of not being accepted probably came out in a way that, that weren't ideal. But again, he's worked his way through it throughout his career and has become an extremely affable, likable, very rounded guy. And he's an example of somebody who couldn't have been more helpful in terms of supplying the forward. And he was there at the time, obviously. Testament were the band that everybody said at the time were the next Metallica. Whether that was a good thing for them to be called that, I'm not sure. But they were the band, the, the next big thing that was kind of was going to come out of the Bay Area at that time. Uh, so he was there in the thick of it. He was there at the parties and saw all these people. And my my feeling was that he was possibly one of the less obvious guys to get to write a forward. You know, I had a few other people that I probably could have gone to, but I always liked Chuck's style. I loved the band. I loved Testament as much as any band. And uh, when I asked him, he was very happy to do it. Yeah, he, he's, uh, I've, in the couple of times that I've uh, encountered him, he's, it's very gregarious and very outgoing and giving and just, yeah. you know, it seems like a great guy. 
and he just loves he, he loves heavy metal music as much as he did when he was a teenager i'm sure i mean anyone watching him on stage you just need to watch how he plays that microphone stand like he has a guitar he, <laughs> he, yeah he, he he loves it so uh yeah he's one of he's definitely one of heavy metals uh really good guys yeah i call that the king diamond when you got the half yep. microphone stand and your air guitar well mark um if you have, uh, if you're able to, uh, could you tell me a little bit about what you're working on next? What you've got cooking? Oh, I'd love to. Unfortunately, uh, and these will come out in the wash. I do have three things. One of them is, as I described earlier, one where I will not be credited, but I'm working on. It will be very high profile in this sort of genre of music, and people might work out that I've been involved, but I can't say that I am unfortunately the other two are both uh heavy music projects which will i'll be able to announce that i'm involved with in the next week or two unfortunately for the podcast i'm uh, unable to do it but you know trust me still at the coal face of heavy metal mining away working on stuff like what i've done in the past but deep more details to follow well i can't wait to see it i'm happy that we've uh, been able to strike up a friendship through metallica as, as definitely so many times in my life yep yeah, and don't worry, I will plug the hell out of this book. I'll continue to do so. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Mark. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. See ya. Bye. That does it for this episode of Speak and Destroy. You can find me, Ryan Downey, D-O-W-N-E-Y, on Twitter, Superhero HQ on Instagram. And you can also follow the show, Speak and Destroy, on Facebook, Instagram, Speak and Destroy underscore on Twitter. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Please check out our other podcasts, Pop Curse with Ryan J. Downey, and No Prize from God, both of which are available from iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere else that you're consuming podcasts. If there's somewhere that we've missed where our podcast should be, let me know. Ryan at popcurse.com. Drop me an email. The Speak and Destroy artwork was created by Ryan Clark, Grammy-nominated designer and illustrator of Invisible Creature, and lead singer of the band Demon Hunter. Thanks, everybody. Bye. (laughs) 